It's summertime and rum is inevitable right here on Liquid Gold. Welcome back. My name is Mike Wolf, your host today. Shout out to producer Michael Eads and everybody at We Own This Town, the We Own This Town podcast network. And today we are going to be getting into all things rum once again with our friend Adrian Stoner. Adrian's an on-premise manager of Maison Ferran out of Chicago, Illinois, and uh, is also doing a lot for cane advocacy in Barbados, where the beautiful plantation rums come from. So we get into that today with Adrian in part two of our interview with her and just really enjoyed this discussion. We're going to hear the story of plantation pineapple, how that came about, as well as OFTD. These are stalwarts of the uh, rum mixing world these days. And Adrian knows all about these rums. She's worked with them for years. She's got a lot of cool stories. We're also going to hear a lot about Barbados because I wanted to know what's it like down there. I've never been down there. I've always wanted to go, but I wanted to know what are people eating? What are the what are these uh, huts like on the beach where you go and, you know, buy your rum and have a party at your own table? Um, it sounds great. So we're going to hear about that stuff from Adrian and hear all about her cane advocacy and cane to cocktail knowledge that she is throwing down. Also, um, something as I was going back through the episode that really stuck out to me was talking about how the technology has advanced so much in cane processing and molasses production. They're starting to run the risk of affecting the flavor and uh, not having the flavor be quite as pungent and tasty. That was something interesting we get into a little bit, technology versus flavor. And uh, we're getting real about rum today. All right, couple notes here. My book, Barantined, Recipes, Tips, and Stories to Enjoy at Home. As a lot of people are seeing around the country and around the world, supply chain issues, even with the uh, vermouth that I've been making with Love and Exile Wine, we've had a hard time getting the bottles that we need for them. There's just a lot of, there's log jams going on all over the place, and that is the same with printing presses and uh, factories that produce these books. So the book, long story short, is going to be released July 20th now. So just push back a couple weeks. Hopefully I'll have one in my hand here in about a month or so. Can't wait to share that with you. Over 55 different bartenders are in this book, as well as Adrian Stoner, who's on the show today. Now, let me grab her recipe that's in here. I want to give it to you because this is your summer frozen daiquiri right here. Okay, I'm going to give it to you. And I was really excited to see what Adrian might uh, submit for her recipe, being a big fan of her bartending over the years um, as she was at Lost Lake and at Three Dots and a Dash. But this was her, uh, she says in the book, and I quote, this drink was a fun frappe style daiquiri I put together. It's bittersweet, much like my time spent during the pandemic. The rum has changed a few times depending on what's in my house. And I can tell you from the Zoom interview that we did, she has an amazing selection of rum at the house. I could see it up there on the shelf. So for her frozen frappe style daiquiri, it's one ounce of Angostura bitters. That's right. That's what the that's what the real bartenders do. One ounce, no dashes. Okay, one and a half ounces coconut cream, three quarter ounce plantation Jamaica rum, three quarter ounce lime juice, half tablespoon raw turbinado sugar, one and a half cups of crushed ice. That's great. That's great. That's a that's a pro right there, giving you the measurements on the ice because that's important with these frozen daiquiris. 
So one and a half cups crushed ice. All right, we got that. One fresh mint sprig and a lime wheel for the garnish. Blend all ingredients except the garnish in a blender until cold. Serve in a large coupe glass or any glass fit for paradise. Garnish with mint and a lime wheel. Boom. Pretty easy recipe. A really fun recipe with all those Angostura bitters. Try that out. And you can always see, you could throw in a half ounce of pineapple juice. You could throw in a little bit of uh, orange curacao, maybe Bermuda Yacht Club it up. Throw in a little falernum, throw in a syrup that you made. There's so many different things you can do with your uh, summer frozen daiquiri. So have at it. Get back to us. Email us liquidgoldpot at gmail.com. Let us know your summer daiquiri that you'll be making. And as always, you can follow us and hit us up on Instagram at liquidgold underscore pod. All right, without further ado, let's throw things over to part two of our interview with Adrian Stoner. We start things off getting into the story behind Plantation Pineapple. I'll never forget the first time that a rep came into Husk and they were like, I got something you've got to try. It's delicious. It might not be for you guys, but you need to try it. It's so good. <laughs> and they lay down a bottle of the pineapple rum, Stiggins Fancy Pineapple Rum from Plantation. And uh, I remember trying it with a few of the guys at the bar and stuff. And it was just incredible. Blew us away. It became a phenomenon in the cocktail world. Got to be to the point maybe a year later, we're like, are we going to be able to get any of that uh, <laughs> pineapple rum? Because we're kind of wanting some. Can you tell me a little bit about the story? Like what makes that stuff so delicious? Why was it such a phenomenon? Yeah, well, the pineapple rum was supposed to be a one-off thing. It was really just created to give as a gift for the apprentice bartenders, the cap caps <laughs> at uh -huh. Tales of the Cocktail. Um, mm. But yeah, those are those apprentice bartenders. They work so hard, really just like 6 a.m. to 2 a.m. They don't sleep. Uh, it's grueling work. And, you know, at the end of the year, usually all the brand folks, all the suppliers just like unload all of their booze and try to give away all their swag. Well, we wanted to give something fun, like a little gift. We wanted to like create something. So we we decided to come up with a pineapple rum um, for a couple reasons. One, uh, because David Wondrich had um, shown us this character from Charles Dickens. And it was this reverend who um, would, you know, go around preaching like sobriety and abstinence, but secretly always had like a little infusion in his pocket. Um, it was drinking. Wow. He was drinking the whole time. And, and we mm -hmm. thought that was kind of cute. We're like, well, we could do like a little pineapple infusion because pineapple is the symbol of hospitality. So what better way to treat the, the hardworking bar staff, right? So we just did a one-off thing, gave it out, and then mm -hmm. it was really popular. So people started asking like, when are you going to get this? Like when's, yeah. when's the next batch? And we're like, we weren't planning on making another uh -huh. batch that wasn't going to be a thing You're like um, oh we gotta go to the store and get some pineapples <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah um so that that was like the that's the long version of that story i guess but the production itself is really unique i think and mm -hmm. and that's what makes the product stand out is that it's um we're taking a uh the skin of the pineapple the queen victoria pineapples and we're taking just the skin part mm -hmm. um and infusing it with a white rum with our blend for three star before it's taken down to bottling. And then we redistill that infusion. So we're kind of like accentuating it, you know, we're, we're distilling it so that we get the essence of the pineapple without being a fruit bomb. Mm -hmm. While that's happening, we're infusing the fleshy part of the pineapple with our original dark rum. 
Um, so we blend the two together, the, the original dark infusion and then the fresh distillate. Um, so Amazing. It's just a unique kind of production style and, and it's not, um, you know, it's real pineapple. It's not artificially flavored. So I think mm-hmm. that carries over, but because we do have that, that fresh distillate, it, it has like the, the fresh pineapple scent on the nose without being a sugar bomb. And, you know, well, there's so much cool yeast and flavors that are in the pineapple skins that, and, and it's cool. People are really starting to use more and make their own tapache. We, had, we did a tapache recipe on our bubbles episode. You can go back and check that out. Yeah. Tapache is amazing and a great way to use up. So uh, good. Yeah. We could tie that into your, your new sustainability um, focus over there. So that's a great story. And there's plenty of things and people have been making cocktails with that pineapple rum for a long time. Before we get into more sustainability type stuff, um, the OFTD is also a great story because that's become a favorite of bartenders. It's super overproof and yet somehow tastes like top shelf bourbon mm-hmm. mixed with, you know, I don't even, I don't even know what uh, heaven, but um, heaven <laughs> and danger, heaven and hell. I don't know. It's like a metal song. <laughs> yeah. um, so it was called OFTD. And I always mm-hmm. heard that that was originally, oh, fuck, that's delicious. Truth. True story. So can you tell um, me a little bit more about that story of that? Yeah, that- yeah we, we got a bunch of guys together, like the, you know, the modern kind of rum icons of, of our industry. So we had Dave Wondrich and Martin Kate and Jeff Beachbum Berry and uh, Paul McGee, of course. Scotty Shooter uh, from Dirty Dicks and Paul McFadden from Trailer Happiness and, of course, Alex Zahn. So they had to come together and uh, come up with a blend um, for this rum. It was kind of a partnership. And, of course, like, oh, what a horrible job, right? Like, let's all get together and just drink all of the rum and and play with it for, like, weeks until we get it right. Mm-hmm. Um, so they had to agree on a blend. And if you know anything about any – any rum people in general and, and certainly like tiki um, purveyors, they're not like, they don't back down. Right. Everyone has opinion. Yeah. We can't even, uh, we can't even agree on how to make a Mai Tai. So, right, right. you know, to have these guys sit in a room together and, and nail down a blend was not an easy task, but probably a fun one. And mm-hmm. they were going around tasting things and near the end of the tasting, uh, Dave Wondrich um, was rumored to have tasted the last concoction and said, oh, fuck, that's delicious. And they're like, that's <laughs> it. We're done. That's what we're putting on the bottle. Like nail, nailed it. Green light. Um, but you can't put swear words on bottles because of TTB. So we called it old fashioned traditional dark instead. Or as I like to say, oh, fuck, that's dangerous because. Yeah. Is. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's dangerous. It's too delicious uh, for the proof, frankly. It's better than it has any right being. Right. And it's a great story because if you drink enough of that kind of thing, you actually will trick yourself into thinking that you can put on a bottle. Oh, fuck, that's delicious. And they're like, we got it. That's we're done. Oh, great. Great job, everybody. And then like the next day, they're like, pat ourselves on the back. Um, Oh, wait, we can't call it that. (laughs) Nope. Sure. Yeah, it's like sounded like a good idea at the time. It is. It's great. Um, it's something to to be aware of when you're drinking. It's high proof. It's overproof. It's in the name, but um, it can add a lot to tropical cocktails, to zombies. I know we're, we're using a lot of it in the zombie 
you can add it to uh, even float it over my Tyler, like we were saying, um, and it adds a very rich and really powerful note. So mm-hmm. if you feel good about like the other flavors that you're using, if you have like a little bit of orange juice, a little bit of pineapple, maybe some nice lime, you have some good rum, you have a flavor that you think is great, maybe a little banana. And then you throw that in there. It just like lends. It's just like, oh yeah, this is a cocktail. This is a rum mm-hmm. drink. This is, this is serious business. And so perfect it's, it's for, a, you know, tropical because of it's like multi-island. Yeah. It's, uh, well, not island, right? Guyana's not an island. But having this blend of rums to begin with, it's just layered. It's already mm-hmm. layered in and of itself. So it just brings a new depth to anything that you're putting it in. A lot of the rums that you talk about um, on a daily basis are from Barbados. Yeah. Woo-hoo. Which <laughs> I feel like they get credited with the inventing rum. They do. So are you working at the birthplace of rum? Yeah. I mean, yeah. not not directly, but I have the privilege. <laughs> I have the right. privilege, the task and privilege of um, working alongside our team at West Indies Rum Distillery. Um, so we're fortunate enough to acquire that distillery, which was part of a part of another uh, acquisition, the NRJ. So mm. we are one third of the ownership at uh, in Jamaica of Clarendon and Long Pond. Um, we share that with the Jamaican government and also uh, DDL. Um, mm. But then in Barbados, we are um, in full production control, but we have the team there that's been there since the beginning, just killing it. Um, so Don Ben, who's been the distiller there, the master distiller there for over 20 years. Um, Dario uh, Jordan, who's just amazing wizard of fermentation. We have a really, really cool team there. And I am always thankful that I get to have any participation in that work. Well, let's talk about what's it like in Barbados. You get there, um, you probably got a pretty cool place to stay. Um, Palm trees swayed in the Mm -hmm. breeze. Um, But what's it like there on the island? What are some things that you're eating? What are some of the drinks that you saw? Like, oh, the locals are drinking this. What are people doing there? Uh, It's warm. It's, it's mm-hmm. about the same temperature every day. Um, they usually kind of luck out with hurricanes because of where they're positioned. They, they don't really get too many um, ugly weather patterns, which is nice. Um, yeah, it's, it's a small island as well. And, and kind of the south end of it, there's uh, bigger hills and forest area. And then um, where we're located, the distillery is kind of near, kind of near um, Bridgetown, but not mm-hmm. in the city proper. Our distillery is on the water. We we always joke, but it's it's not actually a joke that uh, our manager, you know, if he needs a break on lunch, you just go out to have a swim. And we've done that, you know, for wow. our work meetings when we we have our you know week long um, work meetings in Barbados. We'll we'll take lunch breaks uh, in the water. Wow! Just have a quick swim and then get back to it, but. Um, it's What's beautiful. the water like? Is it clear and beautiful? It's perfect. It's yeah. clear. It's mm. perfect. I mean, I the people are so nice. Everyone there is so nice. There's this really great bar. I got to give them a shout out. It's called Chicken George. It's cool. Chicken George. My favorite place. It's it's a hut technically. Uh-huh. It's like a little hut uh-huh. with a bunch of other huts right on the beach. Um, and at night it turns into like a karaoke bar. Uh, you can order food there, although I've never ordered food there. I usually get there a little too late and just stay much, much later. Um, but yeah, great, great owner there. Uh, there's plenty of great bars. I mean, the, the culture. What are they drinking in those bars? Would you say? 
you order, um, it, you know, they're called rum shops. So you just, you yep. buy the full bottle, mm. you know? So everyone, you buy a bottle and then you can buy the mixer separate and then they'll give you like a little ice bin mm-hmm. or like a little mini cooler. And then you take that to your table and you share. Mm. And it's customary. If somebody, if, if you buy a bottle for somebody, they have to, they'll buy you a bottle and it's just like rude not to. So you just like, that's just the trade like it's just yeah. saying thank you so there's a lot of like bottle sharing <laughs> yeah um, you're like looking at your bill the next day and you're like did i buy eight bottles of rum at that yeah. <laughs> yeah i mean you can get different different sizes you know you can get yeah. a fifth you can get little minis um but yeah people just buy full bottles of rum maybe like a a, a crisp beer uh it's it's just a super casual place i think i've uh the food there's different kind of varieties of barbecue i've had like chicken certainly and mm-hmm. lots of seafood um yeah how's he cooking the chicken at chicken there's like a, must have a thing like a smoker situation yeah okay there's yeah. a like kermit's um they have good food or uh mm-hmm. sorry wendy's i don't want wendy's to yeah, they not double stack good. Wendy's. We're talking no, no, no. Wendy's <laughs> of Barbados. Yeah, they, it's it's yeah. kind of like a soccer bar. They just call it football, but I, it seems I mean, like those are the best bars in you know in different islands. Like uh, my wife and I went to St. Croix a long time ago, and uh, was talking to one of our guests who we had on a couple months ago when we had Darcy O'Neill on. He was talking about seeking out this special cinnamon that grew on the island of St. Croix. And this great bartender who was showing him around, they ended up going to the same bar that my wife and I went to, which is like a shack in the middle of the rainforest where they have like their own moonshine. And it seems like when you find those kind of places, that's where you need to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Barbados has, um, uh, you'll see a lot of uh, like cola tonic and mm. Malby, Malby syrup oh, yeah. um, mm. is very common there as, as like a mixer for cocktails. And um, yeah, Malby's phenomenal. Yeah, it's like uh, if um, it's basically a bark that you can make into a syrup that's similar to like a Coca-Cola type flavor, almost like a sassafras, but mm-hmm. it definitely has its own flavor, sort of Dr. Pepper-ish. Um, but yeah, fascinating. I guess it's common neighborhoods around, I think it was Brooklyn. Yeah, there's a couple Caribbean markets mm. um, here in the city so that I, I do have access. I've I've like played around with it or or made syrups, but that's cool. Um, yeah. Another thing, oh, coconut. You got to get coconut. Yeah. Barbados. They have coconut. And, you know, I'm in Chicago. So if I get access to fresh coconut, fresh yeah. coconut water. That's Are they serving the drinks out of the coconuts in some of those places? Yeah, sometimes. Not not as often. I mean, cocktail culture isn't really – there. there are cocktail bars. Mm-hmm. But I think the, you know, the local, like, the local hang is not, you know – fancy cocktails it's like it's right. a rum shop there are cocktail bars i don't want to say that one of our friends there damien he's a really great bartender and he makes cool cocktails and always knows like where the cool places are so anytime nice. i'm in town i gotta hit him up and say like what's going on this weekend like where's the party at but you do know. they claim rum and barbados as like their thing yeah i mean it's it's definitely a sense of pride i wouldn't yeah. say um it's not boastful you know, yeah. I, I think like Bayesians, Bayesian culture, like Barbadians that I've met are so humble. And, and so it's just like accepted. It's just like mm-hmm. a part of who you are. It's a part mm. of your upbringing and it's, it's just a part of your history. It's, it's not, 
it's not something to brag about or like fight about. You know, I think yeah. every every country I've been to that makes rum says that their rum is the best. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's nothing to fight about, you know. Right, right. Just they're, like, just, they're just proud of it. Yeah. Yeah, just proud. Just generally proud. Pretty amazing. Now, um, you're sort of uh, taking on some new stuff there with the company and getting into more of a, a advocacy role as it pertains to sustainability the processing of cane, you know, I feel like you could go back to the roots of rum as like a sustainable product itself. Obviously, there's a long way to go over the last whatever, 400, 500 years. But what are some things that you're focusing on in that new role? My focus with rum these days, because I I guess I just, the more I learn about rum, the more I want to share with um, the world with, with my friends and with, you know, buyers and, you know, consumers, like I just want to talk about it and I want people to think about rum and give it the same respect they would give any other spirit or any other, you know, beverage, like the way we talk about wine and, and we are so careful talking about organic, you know, organic consumption. And we never really think about these things with rum. You know, Mm -hmm. I've found that there's this gap in, uh, how we, the thought process of spirit production. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll use words like hand cut and in, in other production, you know, no shade to wine production, uh, harvesting wine grapes is difficult work too, mm-hmm. but it's not, it's nothing like the labor that goes into cutting cane. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I just want people to be mindful about what the marketing material is behind rum because there's a disconnect, you know, mm-hmm. the, the commodities market of sugar and molasses trade has kind of separated itself from the rum world and the rum world focuses on like brand education and kind of marketing. And then the marketing machine kind of controls consumer thought and we don't, everything is separate. Mm. So while I'm looking at the big picture as someone who's been a part of all of seeing that education first, seeing it firsthand, seeing those things in action, and then, you know, wanting to share that with the world. But it's just not when I go to Barbados and we want to see a sugar mill, the sugar mill operators don't get it. They don't they don't understand why we even care. Right. Like they think Mm. it's just like it's boring. Like, why would you want to come here? Why This isn't a tourist attraction. You know, like they don't understand why anyone would anyone involved with rum. And I, you know, I try to explain this to my buyers, like buyers want to know these things, but it's not, it's just a world that's been kept separate sometimes intentionally. uh, But also just like, because they see their work as a factory, Mm. you know, there are distilleries that are really huge production that are more industrialized and they don't, offer tours. And for the same reason, they, they say, we don't have a fancy tourist facility. This is, you know, this is a plant. This is like a working machine. I mean, people could certainly come through here with hard hats, but why, you know, like, yeah, you yeah. don't understand why anyone would even want to see the the day-to-day kind of operations uh, of something that scale. And so I want to show the full breadth of the experience of rum production from cane to cocktail, like talking yeah. about where sugar cane is from, um, how it gets processed, how that molasses comes into market. Sometimes it's commodities market. Sometimes you know exactly where you're purchasing it. And if you want to buy ethically and source ethically, you have to follow the chain. You have to know exactly who you're purchasing from. And that's not really an option in you know the, the grand commodities market of, mm-hmm. of sugar sales. Um, so it's a choice. 
you know, it's a choice that producers have to make to say like, we want to do the right thing and we want to make sure that we're getting molasses from sources we can trust. Yeah. So what happens, um, you're on the island of Barbados, arguably home of rum. Mm -hmm. There's some sugar cane. It's ready to be cut in and of itself. Like kind of to me, you know, I'm a romantic guy. I look at the romance and things. So I see that as like this, this beautiful thing. You're cutting cane on the island where rum came from. You're, you're, you're going to turn it into rum at some point. Mm -hmm. But I know there's so much more to it than that. It's a tough process. It's a tough job all around. But what happens to the cane once it gets cut? Yeah. Well, sometimes not. I mean, the, the cane isn't always hand cut. Sometimes it's machine mm -hmm. cut, mm -hmm. usually dependent on just the lay of the land, the geography. If it's too hilly, you can't really move a machine through there to cut it. The machine looks like the, the Gene Krupa, like, um, you know, for anyone that remembers oh, yeah. Nintendo, but yeah. those two spires that kind of like turn into themselves and they cut at the, the root and then they chop it into mm -hmm. a bunch of little pieces. Mm -hmm. um, so sometimes you can't use that machine because it doesn't, the land isn't flat enough or you just don't have a big enough plot to necessitate something that size. Um, or it's a financial reason, right? Because these machines are expensive and the equipment is heavy. And if something breaks down, you have to import all the parts. And so there are various reasons. Sometimes it's hand cut. When it's hand cut, it's obviously cut in not as small of pieces because the machine is very efficient and can cut in many pieces. Um, but hand cut, it can be put on a truck or um, sometimes it's carried by animal, which is, you know, kind of less and less the case. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, usually put on a truck and then taken to the sugar mill and the sugar mm -hmm. mill will break down and extract all of the sugar cane juice it'll go through its process, rip it in a centrifuge. You got the little crystals at the end and the, the leftover waste material is the molasses. Uh, the problem is the, the more efficient sugar mills become because of advances in technology, like very thankful for the advances, advances in technology. Um, mm -hmm. But what that means is that the molasses is getting worse for rum because there's not as much sugar left. There's not as much sugar content remaining in the molasses. So that's also affecting rum, rum production and, and rum producers access to molasses. Uh, so everyone's kind of scrambling to figure out where's, where's the next molasses source. Um, in Barbados, there is still one sugar mill left and there is still some sugar production. Um, not as much obviously as, as back in the day, or even as old as the eighties. I think there was another sugar mill that closed in, I want to say the early 2000s, but um, yeah, there's just one left at, at this moment and wow. we buy as much as we can. I mean, you know, you're paying a premium for um, ethically sourced and ethically produced molasses, mm -hmm. um, but there just isn't enough in Barbados for not even just us. I mean, for there's four distilleries on the island, like there just mm -hmm. isn't enough. Mm -hmm. um, and that's kind of the same for most of the Caribbean Um there's production in Jamaica. Um, some of those producers also have to outsource. And so rum producers are getting molasses from lots of other places. From Dominican Republic is a big one. Guatemala is a big one. Um, there's a lot of sugar production in Mexico, um, Nicaragua. Uh, Brazil does have a ton. They have some of, I think, maybe the most sugar production in the world. Mm. Um, but they don't sell to a lot of rum producers. Um 
just from like market value, it's, it's cheaper mm. to get at other, other places and they keep a lot for themselves. And then they also sell a lot of ethanol. The trade is, is elaborate, you know, it's kind of layered like an onion. Like there's, yeah. there's a lot of layers. There's a lot of reasons why agriculture is kind of suffering in, in the Caribbean and why, um, there isn't a lot of focus put on sugar. And, and part of it is just the asking price cannot compete with the international market. There's like tax tax agreements, there's trade agreements that make it more profitable for other production avenues and other producers to get um, better pricing. And so everyone is kind of scrambling, right? Like it's a race to the bottom mm-hmm. to be able to match a bottle price once you get to market. And it's it's a problem. <laughs> so do you guys need more cane being um, grown and harvested on the island of Barbados? Or do you feel like you need more sugar mills? Or do you, is it kind of like a little bit of both? Is this, um, is this part of rum growing as a category as well? I don't think it's because rum is growing that there's a molasses shortage. There's just not as much focus. I think the the commodities trade, what commodities market has kind of done to cheapen the value of sugar and the value of molasses is what's mm-hmm. kind of altering access. Um, so I don't think it's because we're making more rum. Uh, you can grow sugar anywhere, right? Like it's it, if we couldn't get it on a, a small island like Barbados, there's plenty of other warm places that could easily produce sugar. But the sugar itself, I mean, how much people are consuming sugar and kind of the mm. undervaluing of the product to begin with is what's mm. kind of cutting the deal. Like how yeah. profitable can you be as a company if your base material costs this much, right? Like if the premium is set too high for your base material, you might have a hard time competing with bottle prices and staying competitive. Mm-hmm. Um and so that's kind of why I think if we focus a little bit more as purveyors of the spirit category, um, as a brand ambassador, as a bartender, uh, you know, as a consumer, and really kind of digging into the root of these products and talking about where they're from and really having awareness about this process, um, that in and of itself will create a kind of next level respect. Because we can talk about respect for rum. We can talk about how much we love the cultures of rum um, and and how we drink it and, you know, the experience of it. And we can talk about production styles and tasting notes. Um, But none of those things really highlight the base material. And if Mm. we really want to respect rum and the spirit as a whole, I think we need to respect the labor where it starts. Yeah. Sorry, that felt like a soapbox. <laughs> no, it's I, good. Yeah, I I get you got one. You know, <laughs> it's I started working with Bon Sucro um, to really kind of figure out how their process works. And Bon Sucro, uh, for folks that don't know about it, it's it's kind of like the fair trade of just sugar, but it's more than that. I mean, they it's true they only focus on sugar and kind of like the the chain of custody of sugar. Um, production, molasses sales, et cetera. Um, And I've been working with uh, their Latin America's manager, Miguel Hernandez, and trying to kind of show that the bar world and that the rum production world has something to to offer in this conversation, that we have Mm -hmm. something of value to add because, you know, they never really focused on final consumer. They don't come from a place of like, get the packaging on your, you know, the get the fancy label on your bottle or whatever. It's always mm-hmm. been about 
you know, hitting the source of the issue at the sugar mill in the farm and making sure that the labor is protected and that they're using sustainable environmental practices and proper waste management and doing in-person audits. And so they were already doing that work and trying to highlight the need for that education for people like me and for bartenders to, to really know what that labor even looks like, what that production even really looks like and why we should be thinking about it and how, how all of what we do is a part of that chain of custody, right? Like how do we have a small part of impact in, in that world? That's kind of amazing. Wow. It's fascinating stuff. Um, Cause I feel like rum is a misunderstood category and is um, of all the different spirit categories. I do feel like rum is is maybe the mis- most misunderstood sort of cast off. Now that I know that's changing and I'm kind of generalizing because over the past four or five years, I would say, you know, people who like to like a cocktail or people who do explore different things to drink and think about the things that are going in their glasses have become more aware of different rums. The beautiful four square rums, I think, have have helped with people like appreciating like top shelf rums, things like that. Um, but yeah, do, do you feel like rum is just this misunderstood category and what is it about it that, uh, like the party uh, beverage thing? It, yeah, it gets like, a lot of party connotation. Honestly, yeah. I think the, the party connotation is, a it's a double-edged sword because on the one hand, I think it's great that rum has this unique added experience that unlike other spirits, you will have a positive trigger when you drink a rum from a place that you had that experience, you'll have like, I I used to serve people and they'd be like, Oh, I went to Barbados on my honeymoon. You could give them any Barbados rum and they will have that experience again. You know, Mm. it's about the place and it's about Mm. the rum from that place. Same Mm. with Jamaican, right? Such a signature style of rum. It doesn't have to be a specific brand from Jamaica. They'll have a Jamaican rum and be like instantly they're there. Like, love Jamaican rum. I remember going there, you know, having this experience. And so having, you know, like I said, it's like the double-edged sword. I mean, I'll meet people all day who say they don't like rum, but they'll drink it on vacation um, and have great experiences, right? Like on the other side of that is, yeah, people don't see it um, as a quality beverage. Uh, I I think that's changed a lot in the last, you know, even five years, but um, we'll get there. You know, I, whiskey, yeah, it's it's, t- whiskey is like default for America because it's the right. American spirit. We, you know, bourbon, bourbon is so American. It's so synonymous with our identity as Americans, but Americans were drinking rum first and, mm-hmm. you know, we need to put some respect on that name and on that history that like, why, when did we stop loving rum when it stopped being, cheap to make is that mm. is that when it was game over you know and i i well we yeah we were making it. a lot of rum over here too right Distilling. yeah we were making a lot yeah. of rum the new england's making a lot of rum and mm-hmm. you know obviously uh the entire world of rum changed after abolition right mm. like we cannot sustain um sugar production on the backs of slavery so how do we rephrase this work? How do, how do we see rum in the future? And I think that kind of also changed where rum was headed and giving whiskey, you know, this, this whiskey change, this takeover in the 1800s is kind of still where we're at today is that whiskey is the American spirit, you know, here we are, but 
Mm -hmm. No shade against whiskey. I actually have a lot of questions about um, barrels. This is something I think about often Mm -hmm. about uh, like laws, like the whiskey rules and that it always had to be American oak. I'm one of the people who really doesn't care for new American oak aging, (laughs) which Mm. makes me not a great bourbon drinker. I like bourbon okay, okay, but there's always this like, it's American oak. It's that fresh American oak that gets me every time. Mm. Um, And, you know, when that rule went into play, it was um, partially paid for by lobbyists uh, in in the lumber, you know, in the lumber world. So, Mm. you know, I think about these things like what what did rum taste like? How were they aging it? What were the barrels in the, you know, 1800s and the early 1800s or, you know, even the late 1800s? Yeah, I wonder if they were, were they charring them like as much as uh, to the level they are now? They were probably reusing them quite a bit. Definitely reusing. I mean, I'm sure no one was throwing anything out. And then if they were, you know, traveling rum from like the Caribbean to the like colonizer continent or, you know, whatever country, like they were taking rum from Barbados to England. I mean, there's there's definitely history on this. I'm I'm not. Yeah, so, I'm not so dumb that like there aren't <laughs> books written about it, but. You know, I just think we need to keep that in focus that like rum is is a part of American history. It's a part of the Western history. It changed the Western world. Um, Definitely. I used to make these. um, It's it's not a great name now that I think about it, but I just used to call it colonial bitters because I found them in some old book about that was talking about rum and how people used to make these bitters in colonial times in New England where they were just taking like some of the herbs they had dried up in the kitchen, mm-hmm. maybe some herbs from the garden, something outside and just taking that, infusing that into a bottle for like two months, straining it out. And that was their bitters, you know, that they would use for medicine and things like that. So I used to play around with that and actually used FTD on OFTD on some of them um, in making these like bitters mixtures. And it was great because you got that little bit of like sweetness where you're typically adding that into bitters recipes. You know, you're typically adding something sweet later, but um, the sugar cane had like a cool flavor element to it as well. So I'd recommend if anybody wants to try making their own bitters at home, you can try something simple like that. Take an OFTD, soaking a bunch of stuff from your pantry and herbs from the garden or the store. And um, you could probably come up with a really cool bitters mixture. Yeah, it was such a part of uh, the culture back then. People yeah. were drinking tons of rum, making tons of rum, yeah, we, making things with it. Yeah, I just I don't want to shy away from talking about rum history and also rum present, right? Like sugar production today is still kind of ugly. Like there's still places where you can find modern day slavery. I mean, we need yeah. to be very clear about what this work looks like and who the, you know, like we, we just have to be conscious of our purchasing decisions, not just rum brand, but, you know, as rum producers, we need to talk about the open market and say like, it is no longer acceptable to just like buy molasses on a commodities trade. We should know the source. We should be able to meet the sugar mill operators and, you know, go to these places and know that what we're making is, is ethically sound. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's the hope. But I. <laughs> That's really cool. That's kind of what you're advocating for. Yeah. In your, I, in your advocacy role. It's pretty, pretty awesome. It was kind of like a pet project 
that is developing. And, and I was thankful to have, you know, kind of just full open transparency and open dialogue with Bonsucro. And they've been very helpful to answer any questions. And I've talked to some like sugar mill operators and, you know, and then I've, I'm like building relationships with people in Dominican Republic and, and just trying to, just trying to like stay organized and, and stay on, stay connected because I Mm -hmm. think there, this is the missing link that we, we haven't shown each other who we really are and how we're using each product on its journey in, in the chain of custody, right? Like in its little channel, right. Yeah. you know, the, the sugar mill operator doesn't know what rum producers are doing with their branding or, you know, how they're right. selling their rum or, and, and maybe they just don't care. Or maybe it's just never been a thing. They're just like, I make a thing and I do the thing and then the thing's over. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to simplify anybody's job. It's just that like we, I think as rum brand people, you know, it's tunnel vision. We see mm-hmm. one side of production bartenders see one side of we see the marketing package that they want us to see and i hope that collectively we can all be out there asking bigger questions and and just holding ourselves accountable as consumers yeah like what, where is this coming from like mm-hmm. i just want to know um yeah and how are they being how are people being treated yeah where, and if the answer is from? uncomfortable that's the that's the problem if the right. if the answer is hard to come by or um not easily attainable, then that's the problem. We should yep. have answers for these questions. It shouldn't be an uncomfortable, like questionable thing. It's just like, we're running a business or I'm interested in buying a thing or I like drinking this thing. Where's it from? Yeah. You know, it's capitalism, it's consumerism, but like there's still a way to to do this the right way. Like we shouldn't, we shouldn't be afraid. Right. Making ethical choices about what you buy and who you support. Yeah. Very cool. Well, I've kept you too long here, um, <laughs> but appreciate uh, your time and your passion um, and everything you're doing to advocate um, about sugarcane and all the beautiful products you've got at Maison Ferrant. Adrian Stoner of Chicago, Illinois. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks, Mike. All right. Really enjoyed that talk with Adrian Stoner. Thanks so much to her for coming on and talking about all things rum. You can connect with her as she comes to Nashville every once in a while. She'll be back during the summer. She was just here doing an event with Friends of Rum Tennessee. You can find them on Instagram and find out about tastings, virtual tastings that they're they're doing. Really cool stuff. A lot of great rums that they're talking about and they're doing different events with. So check them out. Follow along. And I've got an event to talk about that's coming up uh, two weeks from tomorrow this is airing on friday may 28th and the event is uh june 12th saturday june 12th at tattered cover bookstore in denver colorado just a thrill to be back there my hometown and my hometown bookstore a lot of great memories there shopping for books for gifts and it was just it was always such an amazing place to visit place to take family family and friends people who are visiting 
Tattered Cover is just an institution out there. So I'm really excited to do an event all talking about Garden to Glass, my book that came out uh, November 2019. And I'll also be discussing a little bit, uh, putting together the book Barantined, which Adrian Stoner is in. I gave that uh, frozen daiquiri recipe at the front of the show. So go back and check that out. But yeah, I'll be at the Tattered Cover Saturday, June 12th at 2.30 p.m. There's still a slight possibility that it will be a virtual event, but we're hoping that it's in store. So we'll see how that goes. And uh, lots more content to come. We've got a fun episode coming up on the Summer of Shots, getting kicked off here with Jeremiah Blake, a legend of Nashville bartending. We talk about the Daisy. uh, That'll be our next episode as well as uh, talking about a few of his famous concoctions from his time at Holland House, Green Hour, Bastion. So really looking forward to that. My name's Mike Wolf, and we will see you next time right here on Liquid Gold.